This conversation is a conversation with Jeff Howe. Jeff Howe is the co-author of our new book, Whiplash. The conversation took place on February 24th at the Harvard Bookstore. Now I'm very pleased to introduce tonight's speakers. Jeff Howe is the Program Coordinator for Media Innovation and the Assistant Professor in the College of Arts, Media, and Design at Northeastern University. He's a contributing editor for Wired Magazine and coined the term crowdsourcing in a 2006 article for, for Wired. He is currently a visiting scholar at the MIT Media Lab and was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University during the 2009-2010 academic year. His previous book, Crowdsourcing, How the Power of the Crowd is Driving the Future of Business, has been translated into 10 languages, and he has also written for many other publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time, and Newsweek, among others. Joy Ito is director of the MIT Media Lab and professor of the Practice of Media Arts and Sciences at MIT. He is a celebrated activist, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist who advocates for emergent democracy, privacy, and internet freedom. He is chairman of the board of PureTech and also sits on the boards of the MacArthur Foundation, the New York Times Company, and others. He has received numerous recognitions, including being named one of the 25 most influential people on the web by Business Week in 2008, and received the Golden Plate Award from the Academy of Achievement in 2014, as well as being inducted into the SXSW Interactive Hall of Fame also in 2014. Whiplash is a collaboration between the two visionaries, utilizing case studies and their research to present nine organizing principles for navigating and surviving the faster future we face. Forbes named Whiplash one of the 10 best technology books of 2016, and in a starred review, Kirkus Review of Books called it an exhilarating and authoritative book, which actually makes sense of our incredibly fast-paced, high-tech society. A standout among titles on technology innovation, it will repay reading and rereading by leaders in all fields. We're very pleased to bring the conversation to Harvard Bookstore tonight. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Howe and Joey Ito. Thank you for having us. Uh, Thank you. And I think Jeff says he wants to start by reading, so I'm going to get him. I feel like it's a bookstore, so I should, you know. <laughs> that was definitely the best intro I've ever had for either book. That was, I'm going to steal it and reuse it. <clears throat> All right, this is just an introduction. Um, on December 28th, 1895, a crowd milled outside the Grand Cafe in Paris for a mysterious exhibition. For one franc, promoters promised, the audience would witness the first quote-unquote living photographs in the history of mankind. If that sounds a lot like the, a carnival sideshow to the modern ear, it wouldn't have deterred a Parisian of the late 19th century. It was an age of sensation, of seances, snake charmers, bear wrestlers, aboriginal warriors, magicians, cycloramas, and psychics. Such wonders shared headlines with the many legitimate scientific discoveries and engineering advances of the 1890s. In just the previous few years, Gustave Eiffel had erected the tallest man-made structure in the world, electricity had turned Paris into the city of light, and automobiles had begun racing past carriages on the city's broad boulevards. The Industrial Revolution had transformed daily life, filling it with novelty and rapid change, and a Parisian could be forgiven for thinking that anything might happen on any given night, because anything often did. Eventually, the first viewers of the first living photographs were ushered down a set of dark, narrow steps into the cafe's basement and into neat rows of folding chairs. 
In the middle of the room, a man stood fiddling with a small wooden box on a raised platform. After a few awkward moments, light burst from this apparatus, illuminating a linen screen with a blurry image of women emerging from the shadows of a factory. This was an underwhelming spectacle. The patrons could see people leave a factory in half the districts of Paris. Then the image flickered strangely and sprung to life. The women on screen began streaming out of the factory in pairs or alone or in small hurried clusters. The grainy footage is laughably primitive today, but in the Grand Café's basement in the middle of Paris that night, the audience gasped and applauded and laughed. Some just sat dumbfounded at the sight. And then, exactly 50 seconds later, it was over. That was as much film, 17 meters, as Auguste and Louis Lumiere, the brothers responsible for their first movie screening in history, could fit inside their invention, the cinematograph. What was it like to be among the first people to see light transformed into a moving image? The first to look at a taut screen and see instead a skirt rustling in the breeze. You had to have attended these thrilling screenings in order to understand just how far the excitement of the crowd could go, one of the first projectionists later recalled. Each scene passes, accompanied by tempestuous applause. After the sixth scene, I return the hall to light. The audience is shaking, cries ring out. Word of this most marvelous of sensations quickly spread. The crowds outside the Grand Café grew so chaotic that the police were required to maintain order. Within a month, the Lumiere brothers had doubled their repertoire, shooting several dozen new views, as the 50-second films were called. Savvy businessmen as well as inventors, by that spring they were holding exhibitions of their work across Europe and America. And yet, the Lumiere are remembered less as the inventors of the motion picture. Others, including Thomas Edison, were right on their heels. And for a single film, La Rive d'un Train, or to be more accurate, they remembered for the riot the film incited when it was first screened. You don't need to be fluent in French to guess that La Rive d'un Train features a train arriving in the act, or sorry, a train in the act of arriving. No one warned the first audience, though. Convinced, supposedly, that the train was about to trundle off the screen and turn them into ripped sacks of lacerated flesh, the tightly packed audience stumbled over one another in a frantic dash for the exits. The lights came up on a mass of humanity jammed into the narrow stairwell. The extent of the tragedy depends on who's telling you believe, and modern scholars, scholars question whether it really happened at all. True or false, the story quickly passed into film lore, becoming what the critic Martin Loperdinger, my German's worse than my French, uh, calls uh, cinema's founding myth. This urban folktale clearly served some kind of vital purpose. Perhaps it was the most accurate way to convey the sheer, uncanny strangeness of witnessing the impossible happen right in front of your eyes. Simple facts were not audacious enough to describe the sensation. We had to invent a myth in order to tell the truth. Technology had exceeded our capacity to understand it, and not for the last time. One might reasonably anticipate the Lumiere, with worldwide fame and a burgeoning catalog, to become fantastically rich and instrumental to the evolution of the medium. Yet by 1900, they were done. Auguste declared that, quote, the cinema is an invention without a future. And the brothers devoted themselves to creating a reliable technique for developing color photographs, which, by the way, I can't recommend highly enough. They're some of the most amazing, they're some of the earliest and most amazing color photographs. Um, what's amazing about this pronouncement isn't that two bright entrepreneurs made a mammoth miscalculation. What's amazing is that it surely seemed like a smart bet at the time. By the turn of the century, the Lumiere occupied a crowded field, their films having inspired countless imitators. 
Up to that point, the early films were single scenes shot from one perspective. There were no pans or cutaways or even plots beyond man steps on Rake, Rake snaps up to hit him in the nose, hilarity ensues. Small wonder that, like the other sensations of the day, once the novelty wore off, films became little more than boardwalk amusements. The technology of film had been created, but not the medium. When we watch these early films, we see pictures that move, but not a movie. So hopefully, hopefully February 24th, 2017 doesn't go down in history as the day that a couple of guys scared everybody and they trampled over each other trying to escape, you know, um, and we are Facebook living this, uh, but you know, and, and I love that part of the book. And by the way, Jeff wrote that part, so we'll give him credit for that. Um, um, it was a, it was a, maybe we can start out like two things I want to start out with and we can talk about this together. I mean, one is sort of why we wrote the book, but also the process and, and why um, I think this collaboration, although it, it was difficult at moments, um, it worked so well because Jeff is a, a, a journalist. He loves history. He's a professional writer and, uh, uh, and, and just as, Curious like crazy, and I, I, I have. I, I was a blogger. I, I do a lot of things. I and, and the, the the great thing was that you know I, I used I go around and give talks a lot, and I remember you know I would say I, I won't I don't want to sound like somebody who we talk about a lot these days, but I would say things that I didn't really know for sure. <laughs> I would say uh, people say you know or or I've heard that. And the great thing about working with Jeff, Jeff and then Chia, who was our researcher on the book, was that um, they would chase down every story that I had heard. And, uh, and Chia would find the reference if it were a historical thing. Jeff would find the story that tied into it. And then he would go and chase down the actual person. Or sometimes I would find the person, Jeff and Chia would go, and they would interview the person, then get the next thing and the next thing. And so every little story that I had that I'd been telling as ways to support arguments, um, we sort of chase down, and in the end of the book, you'll see all the notes of the actual research. So as an academic endeavor of fact-checking everything I've ever thought of, it was, it was amazing. Um, and then I think the process of, of doing it, one of the, at least for me, and you can tell your story, but for me, I had been reading sort of book after book about how the world was changing, how the sky was falling, how everything was becoming complex, all this stuff, but nothing really helped you at the end of it, sort of figure out, well, what do I do about it? And, and they tried sometimes, but it was really, it was a sort of not, it didn't hit home with me. And so the book is not a self-help book because we didn't want it to sound self-helpy because it, I think it sometimes sounds a little condescending and, and childish. But it is a, a book that we hope when people read it, and it sort of anybody reads it, um, it come, you come away with kind of what do you do about the fact that it feels like a train is about to hit you. And, um, and, and, that, and, and, and by the way, we came up with a book before the election. Uh, so it just sort of happened to sort of rhyme with what happened. Um, and, uh, but, 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 but so, we're, so it's also the, the idea of the book is to, to sort of talk, tell stories, talk about these things we're calling principles, but to hopefully um, give you ideas about what you might do. And we have a Facebook group um, where a bunch of people have joined, and now everybody's telling each other stories about how these principles and these things have applied to, to their uh, work, and they're sort of helping each other. So part of it was to try to create a, a movement and a community and a language that people could use to talk to each other. And then the last thing I'll say, and I'll hand it over to Jeff, is that... Um, after we wrote the book, a lot of people started saying, well, why are there nine principles and what about the 10th one? And this one kind of overlaps with that one. They're not like 
um, linear commandments where like each one is distinct and each one is separate about a different topic. They're all kind of about the same thing from a slightly different point of view. And some, your mileage will vary on each one depending on who you are. So you should think, we need to think of them a little bit as a sketch of uh, a general idea rather than like the Ten Commandments because um, I think you will, and, and, and in a way it's sort of self-referential because the book is about how the world is sort of hard to sort of describe linearly but yeah that's a great observation it is it is sort of self-referential in that way i mean they bleed into each other although you know they they do each have distinctness i mean yeah so it was four years instead of two um so there are it turns out difficulties that spring from that uh vis-a-vis -vis publishers children tenure committees um and uh uh everyone really uh uh, yeah, Joey was actually the, as remarkably gracious as I could have ever asked a co-author to be uh, about uh, needed extensions. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I was just really psyched because, you know, my, my agent had called and asked if I'd want to co-author a book. And I said, no, because that's who wants to co-author. <laughs> it just seemed like, no, I, I definitely would not want to do that. It sounds like a recipe for like tobacco. It'd be insane. And he said, well, you know, what if, or I think I probably asked, you know, who with, just out of curiosity, and he said, Joey Ito, and I had uh, profiled Joey for Wired, um, a short profile, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd not only been able to, um, you know, interact with him, but I, I, I got to witness the, the crazy phenomenon that is Joey's reputation in the world, um, which is both as very knowledgeable, um, but also is very menschy. Um, and there just aren't that many humans who are known to be menschy and also brilliant. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and also I knew that for one, Joey had just, uh, I mean, Joey like kind of, I, I'm pretty sure knew everyone really interesting that you'd ever want to talk to before he joined MIT Media Lab. And that was just like, then he joined like the League of Heroes or something. <laughs> So as a journalist who just, you know, my job is just, I just always want to talk to interesting people. And sometimes stories spin off of that. And I'm fortunate enough that people pay me for those stories. Uh, so in that sort of greedy sense, I was just dying to uh, get to, well, a story tells it. Can I, so I, I was on a cybersecurity jag and I was like, I need someone just super smart who you can hook me up with. And you're like, oh, yeah, you should, you should talk to my friend, uh, uh, Vincenzo? No. Hey, is Vincenzo here? Hey, Vincenzo. <laughs> Vincenzo's also actually really smart. No, he is. He is. But it, the story isn't even about the super smartness of it. It's just the insanity of it. And you're like, oh, you should talk to my friend Keith. Um, and so he, he brokered an email and tried. And I was like, for like three days, I was like, how ironic is it that that Joey's really smart cybersecurity person has the exact same name as the head of the former head of the NSA, Keith Alexander. Um, it was it took that time before I was like, oh, that's not a coincidence. That's Keith Alexander, which was sort of the theme of working on, on the book. Was <laughs> but but it, it, it is, but it was, this, I mean, this was not, there are many patterns, but one of the great patterns was, you know, when you know somebody and you've had, you know, cocktail conversations with somebody, that's one thing. But if you send in a professional journalist to sort of ask every question and get every reference, there's a sort of completely different angle and rigor. And so I learned so much about my friends because you come back with these stories and did you know that? So that, that was also this guy. Now I have like a dossier on all, everybody that, that, that we connect. And, 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 and it's not all in the book, but that's what's also amazing is we just, you know, had so much material. Um, and the hardest part, I think, was to try to put something coherent together that was readable, but also tried to um, um, make, make these points.
It's, it's, it's funny because it's, I mean, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's like, like, I'm glad that there's this physical object and all the goals that we set out, like, I'm incredibly gratified that they could be furthered and that they might help people because we really genuinely, when we were trying to decide whether or not to do this, you know, that was, our conversation revolved around that. But, you know, like, for me, the experience was like being in a band for it because it was so, because go Chia. Um, so our researcher is is researcher in many, many other things. And it just felt like a collaboration. I mean, you actually wrote a fair bit of the book. I mean, it wasn't like, it was like, I'll be the writer guy and you be the idea guy. I mean, it wound up being this conversation that after four years kind of man, you know, between the three of us and sometimes other people too. I mean, Vincenzo was hugely helpful. I mean, Vincenzo read a lot of really smart, brilliant people, uh, you know, deserve much more than like a line in the acknowledgements and, and books far, I think writing far more, writing professionally, commercially far more than people often uh, acknowledge is, is such a collaboration. I mean, uh, you know, our editor was deeply involved. We, we and, had Ron Rivest fact check the crypto section. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was the fun part is that I think a lot of people who are real experts in areas really care if it's right yeah. you know and so the the, the collaborative part on just sort of letting people come in and 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 i think you were actually a little bit paranoid at the beginning because i think writers don't like showing their work and oh, yeah. i i i as a blogger and as, as as even in my position as a director of the media lab i always um send anything i i'm worried about to the most knowledgeable people that i know in that space either right after i publish it so that i can edit it later or or edit before I edit it, but um, but then I because I learned so much, you know, because people will, you know, given the chance, will tell you sort of exactly how you're precisely how you're wrong, and then and then you 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 learn some. But and we had that. I mean, I remember you, oh, yeah. you being. I mean, we got some pretty intensive feedback from some people. Yeah, although not as intense as I, I mean, I'm always just worried about the like this isn't even worth editing. You're so stupid, like which is what. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's what I'm paranoid of. Constructive criticism, like, yeah. however severe is, is welcome. It's the, like, because, you know, I'm, you're, as a journalist, you're always the dumbest, per I tell my students this, like, your job is to be the dumbest person in the room. Like, if you're the smartest person in the room and you've convinced them how smart you are, like, congratulations, no one's going to give you quotes or help you. Like, your job is to be like, hi, can you explain this? And the nice thing about working with academics is the answer is always yes. Like, people are like, oh my God, are you actually interested in my, like, sub subsection of my discipline? Because I will talk to you for hours about that. And they will. It's amazing. <laughs> but no, some some very, you know, uh, people whose work is not at all obscure were incredibly generous with their time. So maybe it's more interesting to sort of hear what people yeah. want to hear about. Um, and I think since we have the mics and since we're streaming, I'll repeat the question. But um, maybe if you raise your hand, you can make a comment, make a question, and or poke us in a direction. Don't be shy. And if anybody... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, how did you determine what to include in the book versus exclude from the book? We may have different answers here, but you want You can start, and then I can. Um, <laughs> I can change. Pick up sticks. Uh, um, uh, we vetted. We vetted and, uh, and talked a lot. I mean, it was still in flux a little bit for the first year. Yeah. But but I think this this is actually Jeff's idea. But the idea was to have each chapter be one of the principles, and to have general um, fields and stories that cut across. And for each of the stories to try to support a set of the principles and then the stories to somehow make sense. And so, uh, it, but it wasn't like we tried to 
predetermine how we would argue things. But as we started to write the stories, I think we saw, okay, this principle doesn't have enough material or, or, or this story just changed completely because we were trying, because over the last four years, I think, you know, everything has changed so a lot. I always um, use CRISPR-Cas9 as example. Like yes. it literally, like the, the, so I'm going to guess that we're here at Cambridge. Most people know what CRISPR-Cas9 is, but you know, a very sophisticated gene editing technique, but one that's also incredibly effective. It's the paper is published, I think, like after, well after we sign our book contract, it is, it's... Well, well, there's a bunch of stuff you added after you sent the final draft, which sort of pissed oh, yeah. off our publisher. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I, yeah, and I've had this experience before. It's, it's, you know, and I wrote for Wired Magazine for years and years and years. And even that with a three-week lead time. I mean, I, remember I started an article on MySpace, which no one had ever heard of. And we were writing about because it, it was a good music story because bands were using it to go, they were calling it direct band to fan and like circumventing the managers and everything. And it had like 200 million. <laughs> when I started working on the article, I had like, you know, a million users. By the time I was done, it was 200 million. So yeah, things change. And, and, and for me, I think the hardest was... Um, at places where the te technical truth was kind of difficult, like in cryptography or in in some of the bio sections, but but even in 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 in, in things like cryptocurrency, and I knew that my peers would be reading it, and so it would be judged at at the sort of academic accuracy level. But then you didn't want to lose the audience. So so the hardest part was, I think, for me was to sort of no, this isn't true, or this actually makes the point, but we need to say this in order for it to be accurate. Because I think fundamentally academic publishing, the whole point is to be exhaustively thorough versus a book like this, you want to be unexhaustively uh, readable and to get to the point. And I think that was, that was hard. And sometimes we picked certain stories over others because they were easier to digest, um, but made a certain point. But it, it was hard. And I think we, we spent a lot of time talking to people that didn't end up in the book, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. huge. Yeah. Yeah, which often happens, but it's crazy the amount of overage. As you're describing, and just to follow up on that last question a little bit, the, the idea of focus is such a difficult thing in mm -hmm. the world. There's just so much out there for all of us all the time. One fascinating thing about our president, president is that he's requiring us to focus. Yeah, I think that's an issue. <laughs> like it or not, how you see that politically, yeah. he's, he's focusing things, and he's, he may get some things done because of that. Yeah. Is that a part of your approach in your book? Is that whatever issue we may pick, let's say the environment, how are we getting better focus so that things mm -hmm. are going to happen? How do we get the world to happen? So I, 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 I often say, I often think about our new new president and um um i i it's it's funny because i feel like he read the book but our other candidate didn't he didn't read no actually i don't think he's ever read ever read a book but um but but it but it but it but it feels it feels like he did because actually kind of what we say in the book really is to have a lot of peripheral vision and to be very responsive and agile about seizing opportunities as they show up which he has shown an ability to do and then sort of laser focus when you're executing and this combination so i, I often use the example of a of a mushroom hunter so in a, when you mushroom hunt you you completely sort of melt your focus and then the mushroom patterns pop out you can't you can't scan and, and focus and find mushrooms but when you're driving home you better be pretty focused on your driving and and the ability to switch back and forth out of peripheral vision mode into focus mode is is really important and i think that um 
um, he's causing us to do it because I think you have to have peripheral vision because you don't know what where the next thing is going to land and you have to be agile to be able to move very quickly um, after and 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 to you know to, to to support whatever we need to do. I think it, you know you know there's a bunch of stuff that's really difficult to talk about, but but it, it definitely is causing. Um, both the institutions, like the like the like the like the um, um, you know the, our, our our bureaucrats in, in you know the, like the, my favorite is the EPA creating a uh, alternative site to mirror all of their data. I mean these people are being more entrepreneurial than they've ever been, so that's interesting to watch how they're they're adapting to this. Um, but I but I but I do I do think that 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 that's, that's pushing us to be uh, uh, very different. I don't know if you have a. And I, I'm also on the board of the New York Times, and I just, I don't know if you just saw the news that we just got kicked out of the briefings. Uh, yeah. And so it's kind of like, okay, New York Times, what do we do now? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head up. I mean, I, I will say that it's, it's interesting that how, it, to, as someone who, this doesn't have anything to do with the book, but in my, you know, day job of, you know, uh, uh, helping run a grad program at a journalism school. I mean, it's been very invigorating and very clarifying, which is what I, you know, when you spoke of focus, I mean, it really does, um, you know, it's, it's, a, 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 a what do you call it? Free or, uh, you know, I thought when, when, uh, Bannon called us the opposition party. I mean, that, that's a bit of what, you know, we're inculcated into the idea that journalists are supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the, the comfortable. So it's, I, I felt that was kind of a badge of honor. I mean, that is what we're supposed to do: is is be the fourth estate, is to dissent, is to, and um, you know, God willing, we'll be able to. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. In the book, you talk about the difference between immersion and Yeah. Well, so yeah. So the, the question was um, in the book. There's a a, a, sec, a one of the principles is emergence over authority, and we talk about emergent systems. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that. But I think the question was um, the alt right and other systems are emergent, but they're also becoming authoritarian, right? And I think uh, uh, there's there's this really interesting relationship between. Uh, insurgency and institutions. And this is something that uh, uh, Ethan Zuckerman uh, that runs the Center for Civic Media at the Media Lab is thinking a lot about. And what's interesting about, I mean, now as an academic, you can call really horrible things. You can just say, wow, that's interesting. And so what's interesting about what's happening is that a lot of the institutions that might have felt like they were authoritarian to people, even to students, like let's say the EPA, are suddenly the resistance and the insurgents and 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 it's it's a very interesting thing where uh, there's a there there's a there's a balance between um, the provocation and, and journalism is really about um, dissent it's about disobedience it's about questioning authority but it's also in a state you know and it's an institution that we have to protect so I think first of all authoritarian and institution are are different and I think a, a, the the to, to describe the principle just for a minute is so the principle basically is that. Um, uh, in a hierarchical system that moves slowly, you can uh, make plans and issue orders and work in a hierarchy. And it's kind of like the redcoats versus the the gorillas. It's 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 when you have a system that's uh, decentralized and well connected, you start to see emergent behavior. So the, the example, my, my favorite book on this is the work book Emergence by uh, Stephen Johnson, where he talks about ants and each ant. 
as an individual doesn't know the whole of it, but in an ant colony, you will see that they are very precise in putting the garbage um, as far away from the entrance of the of the of the colony as possible, and then they put the grave uh, uh, as far as away as they can, and and that intelligence is beyond the intelligence of an ant. Um, similarly, we see a lot of movements, whether it's Arab Spring or uh, or or things like the alt right, where. Um, there may be some masterminding going on, but the collective actions and, and the system is, uh, is, is an emergent behavior uh, that's very bottom-up. And, and what's a little bit different from emergence and just pure bottom-up is that it's, it's, it's not like um, it, it actually has an ability to have some sort of cognition and to be able to course-correct and move. And, and, and I think all the principles, by the way, aren't normatively good. I think we're just saying the world is going this way, um, and that's why I sort of joke that maybe Donald Trump had read this. I mean, there are certain survival traits. It's harder for the incumbent institutions because they've been designed around a slower system um, of the sort of the industrial revolution-sized um, speeds. Um, the newer guys can take advantage of these principles more um, better, especially if they haven't had an education where they've been trained to be that way. So a lot of the people who who are, are very good at it, and, and you look in the Middle East, you know, if you look at some of the, in Joshua Ramos' book, um, uh, the, the age of the unthinkable, he talks about um, how the, the Hezbollah kids um, are literally just live this kind of um, a, a lot of the principles that we talk about. So, so, so it, it is, it is an agility and, and, and to get back to the authoritarian, it, it, it's, it's a, the, so I don't think that a lot of what we see, there's some planning going on, obviously, in the administration and things rolling out. So you can, they can be hybrids, but I think the, 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 it's the result. So what happens a lot is if an insurgency wins, they suddenly become the man. And the problem is, in some cases, like in Arab Spring, because you didn't have rule of law. And I also feel like in the civil rights movement and others, since they move slower, um, you had to build the institutions before you had the protests. So when you finished the protests and won, you still had the institutions to then follow through and, and carry out the work. Whereas in Arab Spring, because we didn't have institution building added to the fact that we didn't have rule of law, those weren't able to sustain to then rebuild. And I think in the case of what we see with the alt-right and others, you see the emergence which caused a lot of the, uh, the self-organizing element. And the question is whether they can organize into a new kind of institution or not. Yeah, I, 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 it's uh, it's I, I, it isn't something that surprises me that the pendulum swings both ways. I mean, I, I, in in writing this book, confirmed even more the faith that the arc of the universe, moral or not, is really really long. I mean, and so I, we weren't trying to write the book of like, here are principles for 2018. Um, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, I spent a summer in 1815, none of it wound up in the book, wrote a whole chapter, researched deeply the economic thought in New York City in 1815. And what I learned is basically that you would have a hard time finding any craftsman, literate or not, who had not heard of Adam Smith and you would have an equally hard time finding anyone, even a merchant, that had even really begun to incorporate incorporate capitalist ideas by 1815. I mean, there was there was just waste. Every I mean, it, it's it's our uh, the principles of the Enlightenment still held sway, and so you ran a business for honor and for out of community. An idea of profit would be foreign. I mean, you would never have if you had told your journeymen and apprentices that they could not have a gill of gin with their 10 a.m. donuts, and that's a real thing, you know, they would riot like that was a, you know, so the idea of like, this would be 
more efficient shop if everyone wasn't drunk. That's not a decision that would be made. So, you know, it takes a long, long time. I mean, so that story I read at the beginning uh, is is the way that story ends is, is in uh, works especially when I'm showing slides, is in 1905, this guy G.W. Anderson also releases a very short film. It's just of little girls feeding a sick kitten. But it has a, um, a, a great innovation in it, and that is a close-up on the kittens. And, and it took 10 years for humans to create a close-up, even though the technology for the close-up existed with the very first film. But our brains had not shifted to think, G.W. Anderson actually worried that audiences would think that this little girl had been decapitated. If, if, because people wouldn't be able to conceive of like, like, you know, object permanence. Like, I bet she still exists, even though we can't see, you know, because like we weren't educated for frames. And so it, it's just, I feel like it just takes us a long time and, 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 and there'll be pushback. And what's weird about saying this at the Harvard Bookstore is, um, you know, one of the questions I have working with journalists is, and I, I can't go into too much detail, but we, we, we explore the market of, um, of journalism. And, and the question is, you know, do complete sentences matter? Um, you know, no, no, seriously, you know, we, we have a somewhat, you know, highbrow, prudish way of thinking about journalism where it's all in the third person, it's all in complete sentences. It's formatted in a certain way, you know. And and kids that we talk to don't care. They want things shortened. They want it fast. They want some video. They want it in first person. How can we trust anything in third person? Because you don't even know who the person is. And, and you want to hear from the person who's actually there. And I will triangulate the bias because I want to hear what the position of all these people are. Who's to say what the neutral point of view is. That's so, you know, old-fashioned and pompous. And and you might poo-poo that and say, well, no, but that's just, you know, how no, can you say that? But the thing is, you know, you might be underestimating the enemy if you think that a third-grade vocabulary isn't enough um, to, you know, uh, to, to do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Right? No, I, I mean, just to stick with journalism, I mean, I feel really strongly that convention blinkers us, that it's these are chains. I mean, maybe fatally. You know, it's very difficult for, it's very difficult for me. And I've been working in innovation. It's for, like that you're worried that you're going to decapitate the cat. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. It is. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great analogy. It is. Like I, and, and I mean, one of the things that came out of the book is I, I just, I, wound up hating those Apple ads because like, you know what? Thinking different isn't a slogan. It's really hard. And it should be think differently. Yes, it should be. Uh, uh, besides being grammatically incorrect. Well, that's part of the new regime is, you know, we're allowed to mangle adverbs. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it, so it takes like, it takes well into the 1830s, 1840s for people to make like Adam Smith's classic example of like, well, okay, if you just, uh, d you know, divide the labor, you can make 10,000 pins instead of like 10. And, and, and people read it and they are like, let's go back to those 10 pins. <laughs> it's just insane. It's, and it's, and I, but I'm a victim of it too. It's, yeah. it's well, absolutely. That's, that's what's, uh, this particular story wasn't, we didn't put in the book, but a lot of what we believe to be absolute truths are pretty new, right? And that's just generally true. But if you look at the history of corporations, 
right, of shareholders and corporations, they were actually ways for communities to invest in socially responsible things. You couldn't get a charter to start a company unless you said, okay, this windmill is going to help do this and do that. And they were all social missions and people collected money and they got the ability to raise money because they had a mission. It wasn't to make more money for the shareholders. They were set up to get money to do social missions or, or at least arguably social missions. And, and, and I think that that, it's so funny that, that companies, that, that idea that you, you are, you, you, you have to hold to your charter, that's sort of gone. And then weirdly, foundations were set up, you know, the, the, the way of setting up foundations were just set up when you had piles of money, didn't know what to do. But now foundations are the ones that have these mission statements. This is interesting how, you know, just as the world changes, you sort of forget the provenance of some of these things that we, we, we have. That's, I hadn't heard that later. So, so basically, I just want to keep getting commissioned books to write with Joey. So I get to just sit, sit like, wherever he's been in the last month and fast. So the fact that you haven't heard that means that it hasn't been properly sourced. So <laughs> it could be fake news. But yeah. <laughs> uh, are you thinking at all about doing something with the content that you could be getting get into the printed book, like on the web? Or yep. So the question is, have we thought about using the content in other ways, like putting it on the web or archiving it? We've thought about it. Um, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, I, I have some writing to do. <laughs> um, so we, we have a, a Medium site where we're trying to write blog posts, and, and we have uh, this uh, this community site where we're, we're starting to talk about things. But um, I, think, I think Jeff Jeff has is taking a short break, but he'll yes. be back. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a bit of an exhausting period, but I'm uh, yeah. But I think, I think, to... I think the, the answer is yeah, we sh we should. And I think what would be neat would be to figure out because because my original hope was that this would become part of a broader movement. And for people to tell their stories as well. So we've documented stories, but one of the most interesting things is, is as I've been talking to people, they, they, from completely, you know, like fields that I know nothing about will come back and say, Oh, this was really interesting because it fits so totally well with this story that I have. And I think the, it makes the book more accessible because this is sort of the two of us looking at the world. But when I have a farmer or actually had somebody in the military come back and say, you know, actually these are, these are very similar to the, the things that we're doing. So I think that, that, and then figuring out how you would create a site or some sort of archive where it wasn't, where it was actually useful. I think that that's, that's, you know, consistent with what, and it is weird that we actually wrote a book totally. and, I was just thinking and then you read <laughs> from yeah. it, you know, because it's not actually kind of the, where we think. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, it's funny because it, it, it almost is an illustration of like, it's, so there's this thing called uh, Amara's Law after Roy Amara. Um, and I, I heard it from Rodney Brooks, the roboticist in, in, in discussing artificial intelligence. But Mars Law is people tend to overestimate the impact of a technology in the short run and underestimate the impact of a technology in, in the long run. And I sort of feel that way about, say, like, like you know, the, the announce, you know, the, the pronouncement of the death of the book or the painting or the, or the, you know, the indie rock bar chord, like all of these things are premature and they keep sort of persisting. Um, but it is, I think it was a struggle for us because both of us, like my favorite thing about having written the last book was then I spent five years all over the world, you know, fortunate enough to talk to people and, and it is the, it is the actual act of communication that is the collaborative act. And then the dialogue that comes from, and, and books can't capture that. And I, I don't know how to, we, we banged our heads against this for a long time of like, cause obviously our book would have to be different. And so like, what would our 
book be that would be like this radical innovation? And, and the answer was, it has a really sexy stock. That's how it's different. <laughs> it, but, but it's funny because Amara's law is a, uh, uh, the idea that you under-anticipate the short-term, uh, over-anticipate the short-term, under-anticipate long-term gets attributed to so many people and a lot of people use it, but we know actually where yes. it came from. Yes. <laughs> Chia. So, okay, I'll, I'll, maybe you and then, and then, uh, yeah. I was going to ask that, uh, book as a media, if you like that, but I think I know the answer now. But I guess my follow-up question is that, why did it become a book? Um, because one of you come from journalists, one of you used to blog, did it just kind of gradually build it up and one day, one more paragraph and it become a book? Or in the beginning, you have a different way to approach it, say, I'm going to write a book, so I have to write a different It became a book when a big public company contracted us to to give them a book and then <laughs> uh, yeah no i don't know that's a good question it's well he he's a professional writer so he got up onto a big piece of paper and drew little grids and put the chapters in and and it was a book before we had written anything i mean yeah, we, we sort true. of knew what it, we had the architecture of the book which yeah. is would be exactly not the way i would have written it but it, it helped create structure but i don't think it made it any faster yeah no. <laughs> it didn't it didn't it didn't i it mean it actually started to get like tetris oh my god know? it was yeah it was i mean it was sort of too clever by half although i still don't know what the alternative would have been the problem was it's is it was it was like a research problem it was like okay um, disobedience over compliance. Go learn everything you can about it. You know, I mean, I, it, I didn't, so, some of them were a bit easier, but then there was a day well into the writing, like a year and a half, uh, that, you know, Joey and I were having, we would have these like Saturday retreats and, and you had actually said like, well, you know, but it's not like I'm interested in the principles per se. Like that's not something that's coming up in my life. And I was like, well, what are you really interested in? You were like, okay, like, you know, learning you know, uh, uh, alternative currencies. And, and as Joey was listing these things, it was like, okay, well let's, th these I can research these. I, can, I mean, cause that's what I, you know, I'm, I don't make things up by whole cloth. I need to be led around and sicked on things. And it was like, you know, like all currency go. And, and then I, and so I needed an entree point and, and, and that, that was what led to that sort of lattice structure. But you do need to, you do need to, at least I'm, I'm not smart enough to just write a book. So I need to like map it out and then paint by numbers, like fill it in because otherwise I would be endlessly lost. Books are these massive mazes that I'm always shocked that I've found my way out of when I'm done. <laughs> so there was one over there. Yeah. So, so the question is, how, what was the process of abstracting the stories and building the structure? Do you want to? Well, you know, we we really, it was like really deeply collaborative because even a lot of the framework stuff I made Joey sit and listen to and then weigh in on. And so I would say the secret was your uh, weird white boardy thing the the white whiteboard paper i don't know what that's called what is that called it's like a post-it flip chart yeah but it's like massive it's like you know two feet by and i would always walk in i'd be like where is it because i can't i literally can't think i have to like draw and but you actually do that too i mean so not as much as i do i did a lot of it uh, for, for for me um i had just joined the media lab and i was trying to figure out how much my values and the values of the media lab and the faculty were in sync. So I actually 
started working on these principles with Jeff and I would play it with the faculty and, and they would morph. And I think there was one, which was uh, crowds over experts, which was sort of the precursor to the emergence one, maybe. And uh, Marvin Minsky sort of walked in and said, I have one change. And I'm like, what, what's that? He goes, experts over crowds. I'm like, no, no, that's the opposite. It's not one change. And so that we, so we, we, we got rid of that one. Um, but, but it was, it was a really interesting process. And a lot of the faculty hated practice over theory because they said, no, theory is super important. And I said, no, no, theory is important, but I don't want theory to get in the way of, of, of doing practice. And they said, yeah, but then say that. And I said, no, but these are like these chapter titles and, and we just want to spark the, exactly the conversation we're having. So, so a lot of it was arguing with faculty that got, um, these things tuned to a point where I felt comfortable that if I could argue with my faculty about it, um, I could probably argue with anyone. And, um, um, and, and so, so that at least for creating the principles, but it, it really did, I mean, the principles did go through that. And then we have member companies at the Media Lab. So we have about 85 companies that s support us and a lot of the CEOs come in. So I played it against them as well. And at, at some point, several of the CEOs started printing huge wall size versions of them and putting them up, which was very flattering. But then I knew, all right, maybe this is ready for the book. And that yeah. was, that was the. And it felt that sort of editing was really important because it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, as you grow as a journalist or get older or whatever, I, you know, I, I'm just constantly like find if, if I find like wild speculation in my writing, which I sometimes do, it's because it is impossible to make public utterances without making claims. I mean, you're always making claims, but like all claims are sort of specious without evidence. And sometimes even the evidence, it's still specious and you, you can get trapped in like, how do you write anything? I mean, it's really easy to, um, you know, and legitimate and, and you're, it's legitimately trapped because you're trying to be intellectually honest. Uh, and so what well, this, the, the claims in the book were so broad um, I mean, actually, without that time in 1815, like, I couldn't have that, like, that freed me, because then I remember I came back, and in our conversations, I was like, all right, this thing that we're talking about happening now, it happened before, but knowing that really smart people at the Media Lab were, like, you know, actually talking to you about this, and then saying, okay, yeah, I see it was huge. What coming out of the book and all the insights that you gleaned, mm -hmm. what advice would you be giving us uh, mm -hmm. what we could do to try to incorporate some of these mm -hmm. elements in uh, So can I go? Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I think that your job, if you were um, in that position, is probably the most important or one of the most important things that we have as a challenge, um, but also one of the hardest, you know, because I think the educational system that we have, um, Japan's maybe even more like this than the U.S. and I've worked in, on the Japanese system, is that it was really designed for an era where uh, you would study, 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 then become a professional and then repeat. And so there was this learning mode and then the production mode. And once you were in the production phase of your life, you didn't really have to learn a lot more. Your, your, your job was really protect your family, you know, and, and just earn, earn a living. Um, and machines weren't that strong. So, so you, you might have augmentation through tools, but, but fundamentally we had to build in the, after the industrial revolution, we had to build humans that behaved in many ways like machines, be reliable, be, be interchangeable, to um, be punctual, know a lot, um, have a lot of skills, have manual strength. 
but if you think about that, that's a, that's a robot, right? Um, and a lot of the stuff that we teach students to do now are things that will probably be replaced by robots sometime soon. But there's a bunch of other stuff, the creative learning, the passion, the difference, interaction with humans that robots won't be able to do for a while. But the problem is a couple fold. One is they're hard to measure. So it's our educational system is really designed around how do you measure success and it and the jobs and that are based on that. So there's that whole pipeline of measurement. And so at the at the media lab we have we call creative learning and we say we have four P's projects, peers, passion, play. So there's about ten years of pedagogy that shows that you will learn better through project learning than through a textbook out of context. Um, peer learning, we all know, works really well. Uh, uh, passion is really important because I, I, I teach scuba, and whenever the junior high school teachers dump their students with me, they say, "Watch out for these two; they're troublemakers. They're the ones that I can say." You have to learn Boyle's Law now because we're going to be in the water and you're going to use it. And they're like, okay. And then the other kids who are the good students, they're like, well, you have to go. Is this going to be on the test? Do I get a grade? And, and you get a very different personality. And there's a whole set of kids. I was one of them. We call them interest-driven learners that once you give them some passion, they will just go and stay up all night learning. And a lot of those kids were, were, were missing. But those are the ones that I think are going to be doing really important roles. And then the last one is play. So there's a lot of evidence that shows that you can use pressure and anxiety and financial rewards, and it's good for linear um, productivity, but it's not very good to make people creative. In fact, in a playful mode, you're more likely to be creative. And again, the repetitive tasks that you get out of pressure tend to be things that computers will be better at. Now, you think about it, projects, peers, passion, play. In schools, your, your textbooks, not projects. You're by yourself. You better not be cheating. And passion, we can't measure, so it's not on the test. And play during recess, right? So, so how do we transform the system that we created to generate a workforce to a new system around um, creative learning? And I'm going to keep ranting because this is so. I think that the some of this was in the book, but the the other really important thing I think is that the industrial revolution created a a system of production with an economic model where we measure value with money. So I've heard, you know, New York bankers, friends of mine say, how can he be smart? He's not rich, you know? And so, so somehow we measure intelligence by now, now GDP, the success of the country is measured by productivity. Well, parenting is not calculated into our GDP. So what do you do? You stick your kids in daycare and you work three jobs to make a living. Well, what if you could say actually taking care of your kid is an essential part of productivity? So there's a bunch of things stacked against um, us in terms of trying to get kids to become creative and passionate learners. Now, the good news, I think, is the best uh, educators know this. So they, they, they know uh, what good um, um, teaching is. The problem is I think we have a system that's set up that's very difficult for those people to pull through. So I think it's a, so to give you hopefully a part of the answer, which is um, informal learning. So this learning outside of school, learning online, um, learning in communities has become easier and it's become something that I think the parents will start to see as a, an alternative to learn some new things. And I think we, we first need to convince the parents. And I think the good teachers know this, but I think it has to be kind of a revolution. I don't think an incremental change in the educational system is going to, is going to fix it. I think we need sort of a revolution. And I, I also think that AI is going to accelerate this. So what's going to happen with AI is that the machines will get smarter, but they will get smarter kind of over time. 
So the hardest part about the educational system is going to be that you're going to have to change the courses every time the machine gets a little bit smarter. And, you know, so like I remember in fourth grade, I wanted to get an HP calculator. It was the first one that came out. And my dad, who's a physicist, he said, oh, you no, you won't, you'll, you won't learn math if you have a calculator. And I said, well, did you ever try to calculate orbitals when you were in fourth grade? And he said, no. I, and I said, because you didn't have a calculator. And, 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 and so he got me a calculator. I think there's going to be... There's going to be a modern version of that where people are going to say, hey, you got to learn this too, but the machine can do it. Let's use the machine to learn this other thing that I couldn't learn. And we're going to be in a phase where as educators, as parents, our kids are going to be wanting to do all kinds of things and not wanting to do things that we think are really important, whether we're talking about complete sentences or whatever. And, and I think what the, is going to be the bond is really morality, virtues, trusting the ethical framework of your kids. And so I feel like parenting is, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm planning to have a kid soon. So, so I'm thinking about this a lot is, is really the, like, if, if you can trust your, your, your child to fundamentally do the right thing, given what they know, then I think you can sort of unleash them onto the technology. And I think right now the educational system tends to be much more sort of prescriptive about the details. Um, I'm sorry, I'm ranting too much. No, it's all good stuff. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to add to it. I'd rather have more questions, except to say that, it, you know, working on the book with Joey and being exposed to Mitch Resnick and, and uh, you know, the lifelong kindergarten lab, I mean, transformed the way I teach. There's this, there's this uh, graph that, that, that I, if we'd had any graph in the book, I would have wanted it to be this, which it studies the brainwaves of MIT students for like 24 hours. And, and it, you have to, when I showed it as a slide, you can't really see the legends. You can't see what it is. And there's a total flat line in the middle and everyone's like, oh, they're sleeping. It's like, no, actually the brain's really active when they're sleeping. That's when they're going to lecture. <laughs> it's, it's actually flatter than the sections where they report they're relaxing. Yeah. So they get into a deeper state. So it may not actually be a new thing. <laughs> So, okay, one more. So back there. Well, it's, we don't, we, we weren't able to, oh, sure. So, yeah. So the, the question is that, uh, you, you know, is this a, you know, we, we sort of propose in the book that we're in this period of like ever increasing rapid change. Um, and, and the question is, uh, you know, is this like a smooth thing or is it disrupted? Is it, you know, how far is, is it two steps backwards, one step back? Am I summarizing it well, Justin? Um, <laughs> good, good enough for journalism. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, hopefully, good enough for Facebook Live. Um, but uh, uh, you, you, you know, we uh, the, the model that we actually developed and it wound up getting mostly cut. It was like one paragraph in the book. It's amazing. You think a book, you have all these pages, but it's like some of the best stuff. You just wind up not having space for. But was. Um, I, I really actually like Chi and I had like 
two months more longer on punctuated equilibrium, the Stephen Jay Gould model, because it, it's it's a model that it's not like it's perfect. Like, oh, we see this everywhere, but it just fascinates me that in fact, I think the way you put in the book is like not only does change, like change in culture, changing humans, uh, 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 not happen gradually, but it, it like evolution. People go, oh, it's like evolution. Well, evolution doesn't even work that way. I mean, as far as we know, but it's periods of stasis broken by disruption, and so I I don't like. Nothing about Trump is like really surprised. I even felt like, oh, that's counter to what we're like. I, I think we're in a period of of speciation and like upheaval, and that that would be part of it. And I, I mean, we think, I mean, we're kind of optimistic, but it's also we expect ugliness too. Like, I don't think it's going to be an easy hundred years. And just talking about sort of the history of the future, I think I think that um, Silicon Valley has. Uh, sort of an excessive number of people who worship this idea of, of singularity, who believe that um, you, Ray Kurzweil saying that you will eventually, pretty soon, probably, I think they often say 2040s, uh, you get to where computers and everything become an asymptote and you get sort of infinite intelligence and you re- re- get to escape velocity. And then you bifurcate to the people who believe that then you transcend the world and sort of, you know, you, you live forever and other people who think that the superintelligence will think humans are a bad idea and eliminate us. And, but, but in any case, they believe that there is a geometric curve. And I think that it's more of an East Coast thing, but I think most people that I talk to at Harvard, MIT, and Cambridge believe that the beginning of an S-curve always looks like a, 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 a geometric curve, and that eventually it usually plateaus. I'm more in that camp, um, and I, I think that we're going, and, and you know, I think you see general trends like population, other things just going up, but I do think that you do go through these these cycles, and I think we're going through a cycle that's probably a, a faster, harder growth than we've seen in the past, but that it will eventually um, slow down in a different way, and it's not, we don't know exactly where it's going to go, but but I, 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 I do think that um, the, the the even if it were not true, if you worship the god of geometric uh, singularity, it tends to make you irresponsible because you start to say, you know, the computers are just going to be so smart that all this politics, social sciences, just forget about it because it won't matter anymore. Or I'm going to live forever. What am I going to do about all these people being born? You know, and so there's just all these crazy ideas that... And, and, and you yeah. know, like, one theme of researching the book was, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking to scientists who had moved into biology from other fields. And so a lot of them were trained in physics and and they hit biology and they're like, oh my God, the pattern isn't like linear or geometric. It's stochastic. It's like, it's random. It's, it's you know, madness. It's, I can't figure it out. Like there, there are, there is a pattern, but we don't know what the pattern. And, and so I think that that's, that it's only, it seems, ins- I, I thought, I, I did this deep dive in Kurzweil and I was like, this is Scientology. This is just so dumb. Like, it just, you know, it was like, like, like a, like stars behind him as he spoke. It's like, what is going on? It just seems so, yes, West Coast. It seemed left coast to me. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> in the comfort of our Harvard Boots scholar in Cambridge, yes, signing yes, off from the yes, East Coast. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you.